You must remember this A kiss is still a kiss Welcome to Mondays with Millie, a podcast about the past with real relevance to the present day. I'm your host, Phil Cristofaro, and in this podcast series, I interview my 89-year-old mother-in-law, Doreen, who I affectionately call Millie, about her ordinary life and the extraordinary events which influenced it. Millie has witnessed firsthand some incredible things across 10 decades. This is a personal history which gives us some perspective about life's triumphs and challenges. As time goes by. Welcome to episode number four of Mondays with Millie. As Neville Chamberlain's words echoed in the living rooms of houses across the British Empire, Millie's mind was on a planned holiday with her next-door neighbours. In this episode, we find out how Millie's family have to adjust to a new normal, such as having an air raid shelter in the backyard and a ration book. Please enjoy episode number four of Mondays with Millie. A case of do or die. I'm Doreen, born in Mossside, Manchester, February 1931. In the last episode, we learned you came home from school on the Friday, which is the 1st of September, and your dad wasn't there, and he, he just wasn't at the house and didn't come home for months, and that was a real shock to you and war was declared on the Sunday on the 3rd of September is that your recollection yes that's correct yes 11 11 o'clock in the morning so you remember that so vividly so what were you doing because everyone listened to the radio everyone had the radio in their lounge room is that correct yeah oh yes yes they were told there would be an announcement I must admit I was more concerned about going on holiday I was going on holiday with the next-door neighbours. We were going to Fleetwood, to the seaside, and I never got to go because my mother was so upset. She said, no, no, I I can't separate the family because we don't know what's going to happen. We need to be together. So that was that. It was 11 o'clock. What do you remember about that day apart from the radio It was a lovely sunny day, and I remember my mother crying. It was the first time... I'd seen her cry. She said we all had to say a prayer because a lot of people, young men, were going to be killed. I remember that. What questions do you remember sort of being um, inquisitive or curious about what it meant? I don't think we asked many questions. I think we were so frightened. And, of course, Dad wasn't there, you know. We were worried about him. Where was he? What was he doing? And my mother had no idea what he was doing. So you were asking uh, those questions and she didn't have the answers and that probably made it worse. Yes, it did. Mm. Yes. Okay. Yes. So wars declared. What happens in the week or the weeks following that announcement for you? Well, within a few days we had a... An ARP warden come round with a, and they were wearing steel helmets with ARP written on. I think they were just getting used to them, really. They came round, they wanted to know the names of everybody in the household. 
and um, they gave us a, they had a, a big wad of identity cards and they wrote their identity cards out and gave you a number and everybody had an identity card. And then um, about a week later, I think it was about a week later, uh, someone else came round with gas masks and the gas masks already had to be altered and they fitted another piece on the end. I remember it was green and they taped it onto the end and you had this gas mask and you were supposed to take it with you at all times. And we did. We did, you know. Uh, it became a fashion thing, you see. Lots of people made really fancy covers for the gas mask. Everyone should carry his gas mask just as the civil defence services do. They're under strict orders and always carry them. How many of you carry your gas masks? Yet civilians are just as much in danger of a gas attack as the services, and they should take the same precautions. You should have your gas mask with you always. Your mask is of the greatest importance to you, so have it tested regularly by the warden. Learn to put it on quickly, too. It can be adjusted in a matter of seconds. If you wear spectacles, take them off first. It was, I think it was a week or so later, they came, the council came round and found a spot in your garden to dig up the garden and put the Anderson shelter in. And uh, they were sort of curved metal, you know, and they, they bolted in the centre and they were sort of round, made like a tunnel. And they stuck those in the ground and that was it, nothing else. So really you had to finish them off yourself. And of course, most of them became waterlogged. Nothing seemed to happen for a few months. Things were happening down in London, but nothing much seemed to happen where we were. It was a sort of a, you might say, a cold war until my father came home eventually. He was horrified because he, he'd seen a lot more of the action in that down south, you see, of what was happening. And I think he became, I suppose, a bit of a laughing stock in the area because he became quite frantic about draining the shelter lining it with concrete, putting these bunks in, four bunks, you know, two-tier bunks and that, and fastening a door to the front of it. He didn't even have a door on because he was convinced we were going to need them. He built himself a little dugout at the front of the entrance to the shelter made of sandbags. And he never came in the shelter. He always stayed outside there in his dugout in between doing his ARP uh, work, you know, he'd go on his, well, his his beat sort of thing, and then he'd do his rounds, and then he'd come stand in the, in the dugout. So I'm just trying to picture it. It was attached, he'd, he'd sort of dug a, an extra section well, of no, earth out of the front of the shelter or something, or was it a separate thing? He didn't dig anything out, but he had beer crates, empty beer crates, and he filled them full of cement and um, put sides on. They had sides on. He filled them full of cement, and that was a base. And he built this wall of sandbags around it and put a, a roof on, a corrugated iron roof over, a piece of iron he'd managed to get hold of. And that was his dugout. And he stood outside, or sat outside in the dugout, you see. I remember my mother used to pass drinks out to him <laughs> through the door. <laughs> well, there wasn't room for him to come in the shelter because there were five of us in already, you know. 
So he'd come home after a few months where he'd been, and you said in the last episode you talked about how he realised that he, he was more needed in the Manchester area rather than wherever they had him, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Yes, he came back just before Christmas and that, that was memorable because we didn't know it was coming, of course, and my mother had had bronchitis and um, we went to watch a wedding. One of the neighbours, the daughter was getting married. We went to watch the wedding. By then, of course, you couldn't get confetti and things like that. But some people had obviously saved this confetti. So they threw confetti over the bride. And my sister and I went round gathering up the confetti and repacking it. And we took it home so excited. And we said, we've got some confetti. And when Daddy comes home, we're going to throw it at him. And she said, well, you'd better put it in the playroom. The playroom was the room that my grandmother used to sleep in downstairs, but she died in the, the July, previous July. So mother turned it into a playroom for us and all our toys and the doll's house and everything was there, and Terry's little billiard table and whatnot. And we went into the playroom and this man jumped out at us from behind the door and it was my father. He'd, he'd arrived home. And he was hiding from us. So we finished up throwing the confetti all over the all over the room at him. It was only lying on the floor, so it was easy to sweep up, you know. But that's quite a memory, really, seeing him there. When war was declared, so we, we've had, with COVID, we've had people panic buying, you know, going out and, and buying ridiculous amounts of whatever they can get. Was there panic buying when war was declared? They did, but a lot of people didn't have a great deal of money, remember, you know. There'd been a recession and whatnot, depression, I should say. Immediately, within a couple of weeks, they brought out the ration books and they came round with the ration books as well. And you had everybody had a ration book. The new ration books are coming. So look out for announcements and posters which will tell you when and where to fetch them. You'll see them in your local papers, in post offices, in cinemas and so on. Meanwhile, fill in the reference leaf, this one. Don't post anything. And watch food facts in the papers. And the problem was, for small uh, people that were in business in a small way, you had to have so many registered customers before you could get food before they could buy food. So a lot of the small shopkeepers went out of business because people obviously thought, oh, well, if I go to the co-op or, you know, the groups of shop, they'll, they'll get more food. So we'll be better going, buying our food there. You couldn't just go in any shop with a, a ration book and say, I want my butter ration because they only had, they were only allowed to buy the amount of goods for their registered customers. It sounds like it worked pretty well then. Yeah, well, yes, I think it did. There was a lot of black marketeer going on. My cousin, he didn't pass the medical for forces, so he became a special policeman. He came every week to see my mother, but he would bring some butter, you know. And then there was always this little argument. She'd say, have you stolen this butter? And he'd say, no, no, I didn't. No, I'm a policeman. I didn't steal it. I just happened to come across it. <laughs> and he'd, 
he used to bring her butter, you know. <laughs> and uh, I think she always felt very guilty about this, but she, she accepted it, you know. Things were difficult. And, of course, you've got such a small amount, you know, tiny... I think you got two ounces of cheese and uh, two ounces of butter. A ration book was quite full. It lasted for months and months, the ration book. And you had a sort of a week. They were in weeks, you know. So you had your weekly ration. You went every week for your ration. So you couldn't use two weeks' worth of rations. They were kind no. of like date stamped no. or something like that, were they? No, you couldn't, No. Absolutely everything was, uh, well, you couldn't get coffee anyway, but absolutely everything, tea, sugar, butter, uh, if you wanted. And then there were certain things that were on ration and you had to pay stamps for, like uh, dried fruit, you know, if you wanted to make a a cake or something, you know. Uh, Stalk margarine, um, that was on ration, but you got more of that. And stork was horrible. And all through the war, my father never ate butter. He, it was a principle with him. He always ate the stork margarine and left the butter for the children, you know. I think that's why he became such a, a butter fiend after the war, because he didn't spread it on his bread. He just sliced it. <laughs> Slide A slice of butter on the bread, you know. <laughs> And he was always like that afterwards, loved his butter. So he was making up for lost time. He was, Mm. yes. (laughs) What came as the biggest shock? The bombing. And the Christmas bombing in Manchester was terrible. The city was on fire. We lived miles out of the city in the south part, but the, the sky was lit up. When the Nazis made their ferocious aerial attack on Manchester... They adopted the now familiar tactics of flare-dropping followed by incendiary bombs. Why the flare-dropping, goodness knows, for they still bomb indiscriminately. The firefighting and other ARP services behaved magnificently. And despite the worst time Manchester has experienced... The centre of Manchester was just dreadful. And And the area where my father worked, Ancoats, was just demolished. And it was a poor area, of course. I remember on the Christmas Day... We never saw my father on Christmas Day because um, I found out all the details afterwards, of course, years later. But a police car came for my father very early in the morning and took him into Ancoats because it was the very first time they'd ever given money. They didn't normally give money. They gave food coupons and things like that, you know, to the poor people. And he said he had a Gladstone bag full of money. He had his list of his clients that he used to visit, you know, poor people. He recognised the streets, although some of them had no houses standing. And he managed to find two orange boxes. You know, there were big orange boxes. And once, if you stood one on end, it was like a table. And then you put the other down sideways and use it as a seat. And he sat there with this policeman all day, uh, giving out emergency money because these people had nothing except what they stood up in. A lot of them had gone to the public shelter and they were all right, but they'd come out and the house had gone. And I remember him telling me he spotted this very nice men's hat, a very expensive-looking hat, and he said to the policeman, 
pick that up because somebody will be glad of that. And the policeman said to him, no, no, don't touch it. There's a head underneath it. Yeah. And he, he sat there all day, Christmas Day, giving out money. And, of course, he said that's when he saw the good and the bad in people. He said one old lady came up to him and she said, I've nowhere to go. I don't know where to go. And he said, you know, what's your name? And he looked and he said, well, your your house is all, is all right. He said, it might be damaged. I'll send a policeman with you. Uh, there's no reason why you can't go. Oh, no, no, she said. A man came and gave me some money and he said, he's taken my house now. And he said, these things happened. And uh, he said another time, he said that some people would come and say, oh, I, I, I live in such and such a, a house. And and he knew the area so well. And he'd, he'd look at it and say, no, well, what's your name? Well, no, you don't live there, you know. And they'd go from one area to another. Once they realised money was being given out, you'd always get these people that would try and take advantage. This was Christmas of what year? Well, I think it must have been 1940. Yes, it was 1940, the Christmas Blitz. It wasn't 41. I'm sure it wasn't. Well, that would have just been following the Battle of Britain. So the Battle of Britain was in 1940. What What's your recollection of that? Did you... Did you follow, were you aware that it was happening? Was it, you know, was it uh, yeah. on the radio every day? Did you know the names of the pilots like they were celebrities or were you following the no. numbers or anything like that? You didn't know the names and you didn't know how few there were either. All you knew was that the Spitfires were there and nothing to worry about. The Spitfires will get rid of the Germans, you know. Don't worry about it. You see, we were in the north of England, and don't forget, the only news we got was from the cinema, passing news or the radio. And they, they didn't give you all the bad news, you know. History's greatest drama is being performed in the London theatre of war. Anti-aircraft crews are setting the stage for a repeat performance. The theme is the struggle against the forces of evil, opening as the symphony of gunfire crashes into its overture. The Falklands War brought that home to you. You could come home from work and switch your television on and watch what was happening in the Falklands, but you didn't get that in those days, you see. The only time you saw anything was when you went to the cinema. Perhaps two weeks later you'd get something on the passing news. Do you think people were aware that that was propaganda and that it wasn't necessarily oh, yes. real? Oh, yes, absolutely. Mm. So people had a critical lens on the media, you'd say. You, you heard when things weren't going too well. You must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss. And that's the end of episode four of Mondays with Millie. In the next episode, we'll hear more about life during World War II. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to your company again next week. Mondays with Millie is an e-learn production. Editing and dodgy guitar work by yours truly, Phil Cristofaro. Vocal work by Millie's granddaughter, Neve.
this time goes by.